Welcome to episode 534 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a captivating conversation with actor, author, motivational speaker, tour guide, among other things, Christopher Patrick Lucas. We discuss with him from his apartment in the Meadowlands, his dad as a broadcaster for the Yankees, auditioning for Broadway in high school, seeing a movie at Radio City Music Hall when he was a kid, strikes, social progressiveness of Disney productions, coded movies, never giving up, the story of his father, Ed Lucas, and Guiding Lights, among other things. A wonderful conversation with Christopher Patrick Lucas this go-round. We share some actual facts and figures via Harper's Index, as published in the August 2023 issue of Harper's Magazine. And we have a poem titled, a note to Mateel about Sinead. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it then. Episode 534 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. Yeah. 
Please won't you tell me who is she? Hello? Hello, Christopher Patrick Lucas. Is that you? Oh, that's me. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Oh, thanks for having me on so much. Uh, before we get started, let me uh, share a little background information for the listeners. Christopher Patrick Lucas is an actor, author, motivational speaker, and a lifelong fan of all things Disney. His admiration for Walt led Chris to create a one-person show about Disney called Of Mouse and Man, which has been performed in schools, theaters, museums, and other venues around the country since 2001. He is also the co-author of Seeing Home, the Ed Lucas story, the critically acclaimed book about his father, released by Simon & Schuster and Derek Jeter Publishing in April 2015. A professional actor for over 30 years, Christopher has been seen on the big screen and in television shows, in featured, supporting, and recurring roles. As such, he's been profiled in People Magazine, USA Today, Newsweek, Soap Opera Weekly, The New York Times, and several other national publications. Troubadours and Tours is happy to have on the program Christopher Patrick Lucas. Again, thanks so much for being on, sir. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, uh, before we get started, why don't you share with the folks a little bit about your background, how you got to where you are today? Uh, sure. Thank you for asking. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, so right across the river from New York City. And, you know, New York City is the capital of everything, including show business. So um, my dad, who you mentioned in the book we wrote about, Ed Lucas, was a, a broadcaster for the Yankees for many, many years. And I used to go with him to games as a little kid. And, and being around the Yankees naturally, you know, attracts a lot of show business people. So from an early age, I was exposed to all these show business legends and just kind of fell in love with performing and through my dad kind of got the bug for writing. So it all kind of blended together. And as I progressed through school and into my adult years, it just became the thing I did for a living. Oh, that's neat. The Yankees. Do you remember any interactions with uh, some of the greats? Oh yeah. I mean, we could go for hours with stories with some of the great, you know, everyone from Mickey Mantle all the way down to, you know, some of the current players like Derek Jeter who published our book. So yeah, it was, it was quite a life. Yeah, that's interesting. My uh, father-in-law was sort of like um, a bat boy for the Yankees back in you know the middle twentieth century. Oh wow! Yeah, he he was around with mantle and stuff too. Uh, kind of neat. Yeah, I bet you your father, your father and my father-in-law, they might have crossed paths. I'm I'm almost certain of this probably because he, he my dad pretty much knew every single person at the stadium and the same the reverse is true. Everyone knew him, so I'm sure they did meet. I'm going to have to ask him. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyhow, so you then, um, I guess, chose, I don't know, did you go to college after high school and study uh, communications or theater or something else? And, and, and... Uh, No, I, I was fortunate. When I was in high school, I, it was just complete fluke, luck, or fate, whatever it is, is that my, my high school English teacher, her former husband, was producing a show on Broadway and he needed someone who was young enough. It was a Sherlock Holmes play, and they needed someone who could do, uh, uh, who was about 13 or 14 and could do a British accent, believably. And so she said, oh, you should just go audition. And I went, and I booked the role, and I was in high school and doing the show at night and going to school during the day. And so it 
I, you know, I thought to myself, oh, this is easy. This is how you get to show business. It wasn't that easy after that, but it was the, my, I got started in high school. And then uh, once I graduated high school, I just jumped into it full time. So my, my, my school was doing the work itself. That's how I learned. That's fantastic. What a great experience. Yeah. And um, so you're, you're an author, as we said uh, earlier, and you're talking, you mentioned the book about your dad uh, and also uh, an actor, a tour guide and a Disney historian. How, how did all that come together? And uh, tell, when you, when you uh, mentioned being a tour guide, a tour guide of uh, a tour guide of New York City, mostly. Uh, you you know, how it all came together was, you know, everybody talks about their first love. My first love was New York City. As a little kid, it was just, you know, I, being from New Jersey across the river, it's right there. So uh, I was fortunate that I had my dad and my grandmother would take myself and my older brother over there all the time. And just we were exposed to everything great about the city. So as an adult, when you're an actor and an author as well, you need to fill in some time and fill in income when there's nothing else to do. And so somebody dared me one day. They said, can you take a group full of people around the city and just kind of show them the highlights of the city? And that was 25 years ago. And I guess I did it well the first time because people keep calling me to take them around and show them different parts of the city. That's cool. Is it mainly Manhattan? Mostly, yeah. I, you know, sometimes, occasionally, people will ask me to take them out to you know Brooklyn, which is a highlight. They're there, and the Queens here and there, and the Bronx if they're going up the Yankees. Hardly anyone ever says, "Let's go to Staten Island." I, I don't get often calls for that, but Manhattan is mainly where you know when people think of New York, they think of Manhattan. Yeah, Staten Island usually it gets a sort of a rough billing when looked at when I was looking at all the other boroughs. Yeah, and 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 no offense to people of Staten, it's a lovely place. It's just there's not you know, for tourism. There are only one or two things you could show people, and the rest is all residential. So yeah, yeah. Um, so when when you you uh, talk about your connection to Disney, how did that start? That actually is, again, it's tied it all kind of blends together. Is When I was five years old, my grandmother took me to Radio City Music Hall, and we went to see Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, the animated one that came out actually this year is the 50th anniversary. And for people now that go to movies, you know, you go to the movie, you get a few previews beforehand, and you get Nicole Kidman welcome you into the theater if you go to AMC, and you see the movie, and that's it. But Radio City in the old days when they showed movies – you would get a whole stage show beforehand for a half hour. The Rockettes would come out, and then you'd get maybe a little cartoon before, and then you'd get the movie. And then after the movie, the Rockettes would come out again. So this was my first experience of going to the movies, and it kind of cemented my love for show business, my love for Disney, for everything. And I kind of said, you know, this is what I want to do. Even at that young age, in my head, I, I said, I, I want to be part of this somehow. I don't know how yet, but I, this is what I want to do for my the rest of my life. And uh, you go to Disney itself, uh, oftentimes down in Florida. I do Florida and California, and, and you know as much as and and if there are a variety of Disney-related places all around the country that I visit too. So, yeah, I, I I promised I have two boys, and I promised them that we will take a vacation one day that doesn't involve Disney, because pretty much every one we've ever gone on has somehow been connected to Disney. But yeah, it's it's there's you know you can go back again and again, especially in Florida and find something new to do each and every time. Yeah, my godson and his wife, they love Disney. They named one of their sons Walt. They go all the time, <laughs> you know. And uh, I also have um, another uh, a cousin 
who he, you know, I remember we were sitting down having a conversation, and I'm going to, this leads to something, believe me, that I'm going to ask you. Uh, my my godson, Paul, and uh, my cousin, Joe, and, and Joe, he doesn't like Walt Disney because of some of, you know, sure. his, his past, you know, and Paul was very upset that, you know, Joe would bring that up, and uh, he, Paul was, you know, arguing with with Joe about all the great things he's done and yada, yada, yada. Where, where, where do you fit in in that spectrum? I mean, you, I'm sure, know, you're a historian of Disney, some of the thing, Disney, of some of the things that Walt Disney is known for, in particular anti-Semitism and things like that. How, do, how does that work for you? Well, I mean, a lot of that is myth, the, especially, specifically the anti-Semitic thing that Walt, when he was alive, this is in the 1950s, he was honored by B'nai B'rith and the Knesset in Israel and all these other places. And they did careful vetting of him and they determined, and it's true that all those rumors, most of the anti-Semitic stuff comes from a strike that happened in 1941 at the Disney Studios where the people who were leading the strike, like with any strike, you know, there's a lot of animosity between both sides. And Walt, you know, he was not perfect in it either, but they were trying to tar and feather him as, as an anti-Semite and because a lot of the leaders of the strike were Jewish. And everybody that knew Walt, that worked with him, especially his, his Jewish people that worked with him, all said to a person that he, you know, he was of his time, which people who were born in the early 20th century had particular ways of speaking and acting, but he was not an anti-Semite, nor was he racist or misogynist or any of the other things that people throw at him. He was a, a difficult man to work for sometimes, a tough boss, and again, he was like most people of his age, and he might have said a few things that today we look at and go, oh, that kind of doesn't sound right the way he said it, but uh, there's no evidence, there's a mountain of evidence that he was not anti-Semitic, and there's no evidence at all that people can produce to say, oh, look at this guy, he was a, an anti-Semite. So there are a lot of, it's hard because that's become so ingrained in some people that they hear right away Walt Disney and they think racist, anti-Semite, but when you uncover it and you dig a little bit, you see that it's not the truth, but it's hard to get that message across to people because they'd rather believe the shorthand version. Yeah, yeah, and my my, my God says we're going to be very happy that you support his position because that's yeah. basically what he says too. Uh, uh, thank you for sharing that. I, know I didn't. No I appreciate that. It was a little sensitive of a question. You handled it beautifully. Now, when you look at Disney today, though, you know it's pretty progressive in a lot of ways, especially when you look at what's going on in, with uh, the DeSantis um, uh, governorship and and the policies that are coming out of his office. Regarding LGBTQ community and and the and the likes, uh, so there is it seems today a progressive se sensibility to a certain extent. Well, that that's the other thing that people they seem to have this myth of Walt Disney where they they think he was like this ultra conservative, you know, flag waving all that. But Walt was a progressive himself. He was one of the most progressive people in Hollywood. That his movie, you go back and look at all of his productions, television movies, there's a strain in all of them of fighting for the underdog. And I mean, you look at any of his classic movies, Pinocchio, Dumbo, it's all about the little guy who society cast aside, who, you know, was ostracized. They ignored him. They wanted nothing to do with that person and how they really through love and through empathy and through compassion, they were able to become accepted in the world. And that that was the message of everything he ever did. And he was conservative fiscally and he was also conservative as far as military defense and law enforcement but as far as social things he was extremely liberal so he was that kind of curious mix that you had a lot of people like goldwater and nixon and a lot of other republicans that were the same way that they were 
socially progressive and liberal, but conservative when it came to other things. So um, when people talk about LGBTQ in particular, Walt made four movies, four, they're short films, but all four of them, he could not say the word homosexual, he could not say the word, you know, transvestite or any of those things. So he made coded movies, as they all did back then, and all four were short films, a couple won Academy Awards, that dealt with people who wanted to be other than they were themselves. And it came, you know, whether it was cross-dressing, some actually had cross-dressing. So one was uh, called The Ugly Duckling which is based on the classic tale, but he made it sort of a version of I want to be who I am and, you know, please accept me. He made Ferdinand the bull, um, Mm -hmm. which is, again, is another classic tale, but it's same thing. It's about a bull that everybody expects to be this macho bull. And he just likes sitting in a field with flowers and being himself. And he gets made fun of. And by the end, she shows it. The other one was called the reluctant dragon, which similar thing about a dragon that everybody thinks is going to be this fearsome dragon and just wants to be left alone and be his own thing. And the other one was called Lambert the Sheepish Lion. And again, they're, all of them are less than 10 or 15 minutes, but he made them specifically because Walt, uh, especially with, with uh, Lambert the Lion, he had an animator who was arrested for being in a bar with other men and dancing with other men. And this guy was arrested and everybody thought Walt was going to fire him. They figured, oh, you know, Disney and the reputation. And he bailed the man out and brought him back to the studio and said, I don't care what you do in your personal life. As long as you're a good employee and you're not hurting anyone and you're not committing any, maybe, you know, he didn't think of it as a crime. He said, this is not a crime. It's, you know, the guy was just trying to relax and enjoy himself and got arrested. And so Walt said, anyone who talks against this man will be fired. Not anybody who, you know, is is, is gay or anything like that. So he, he specifically made this movie for the public to say, look, you know, people are just people and you should just... Live and let live. Let people be the way. And that was his philosophy his whole life was live and let live. I don't care what you do in your personal life as long as it doesn't affect anyone else or harm anyone else. And the company has stayed with that. But some people today, they look at that and they think it's some sort of new ideology or whatever word they want to use. And it's not. It's the same. If you, you know, if Walt were alive today, they'd be calling him woke because it's the same thing. Whatever woke is, is what Walt was back then. Wow. Wow. That's that's really insightful. And this would when this happened uh, with the animator you just uh, mentioned, what what uh, decade was that? Was that the 60s or 70s? Uh, no, it was the 50s. The 1950s. 50s. Wow. Yeah. So it, was ju- it was just before, I believe it was just before Disneyland became popular. People forget about Walt Disney, too, is that before Disneyland, he was almost sunk. He almost went bankrupt because after World War II, the company was not making any money. The war almost bankrupted them, and he had a string of flop after flop after flop in the 40s, and it wasn't until he did Cinderella that he started making a little bit of money, but even then, he was skating on thin ice. It was Disneyland that completely changed everything and made him a multimillionaire and made his company, you know, and then all the television appearances and everything cemented him. But before the 1950s, Disney was on shaky ground. This is fascinating stuff. And uh, by the way, folks, we're talking to Christopher Patrick Lucas, actor, author, motivational speaker, among other things, tour guide in New York City. Um, So Walt himself and his family, have you ever crossed paths? I have, actually. Yeah, his grandchildren are still alive. And his his daughter, Diane, was she just died. It's not even a decade now, I think. But uh, Diane's husband was a guy named Ron Miller who played for the Los Angeles Rams and he took over the studio after Walt died. He was he was the guy that kind of ushered in 
Touchstone Pictures. He ushered in Disney Home Video. He was responsible for computers being used in movies. So he was the guy who was trying to move Disney into the 21st century, early in the 80s, but he was trying to get it moving forward. And so I got to know Ron Miller a bit. I got, I've gotten to know some of Walt's grandkids, and you know they all, many of them knew him when they were little, and he died in 1966, so a lot of them you know, only had vague memories of him, but they, they say the same thing. You know, obviously the family is going to be a little bit more biased than outsiders, but there's a great place in San Francisco. It's at the Presidio. It's called the Walt Disney Family Museum, and it's not run by the company. It's run by the family, and it tells his story, warts and all. They, they go into the strike. They go into all the things that, you know, he can be criticized for, and it's just you go to that place, and you walk out knowing everything you need to know about Walt Disney. Christopher, why do you think you're so intrigued and compelled by Walt Disney and what he's done? That's a good question. You know, I, I think everyone in the world picks a personal hero. And aside from family, you know, obviously you have people in your family that are heroic to you. But I don't think you could find anyone in the world that if you said to them, who is it you admire more than anyone else? And there's no wrong answer. I mean, people pick whoever they pick. But there's someone that's their guiding light, that's their touchstone that they look at and go, wow, I kind of want to be like, I may never get to that level, but I want to be like that person and do that. And Walt was the guy for me because he was show business, because he brought so much love and entertainment to the world, but also because of the fact that he never gave up. He was persistent. He went through a lot and that appealed to me. So that's just my guy, but there's lots of people, you know, people pick sports heroes or other things and he, he became the one I gravitated to. Excellent. Thank you. Now let's shift gears a bit. Let's talk about another important person in your life, uh, your dad, and the book you wrote about him. Yeah, well, that's, you know, like I mentioned, people have family here. I love Walt Disney, but nobody's ever going to top my dad. And a lot of people would say that about the fathers. But my dad, Ed Lucas, his story that we turned into a book called Seeing Home is just one of the most remarkable American stories, and that's just me saying this. These are critics that read the book and people that are developing the movie are all saying the same thing, is that uh, he was 12 years old in Jersey City, New Jersey in 1951. He went outside. He loved baseball. He was a big baseball fan. Went outside to play baseball with his friends, and he threw the pitch, and the kid hit a line drive, came right back at him, and hit him right between the eyes, and he went completely blind at 12 years old. And wow. so. If that happened today, there's ways they could fix it. They could take care of it. But back in 1951, everybody was telling him, oh, your life is over. Blind people are useless. Disabled people are worthless to society. And he thought he was going to be standing on a corner with a little cup, you know, tin cup and a cane and begging for money. And my grandmother, knowing he loved baseball, she wrote letters to people like Jackie Robinson and, and Yogi Berra and Joe DiMaggio and ted williams and stan Musial, and all she wanted was like a, a baseball or a note or something and they all came to the hospital to see him personally wow and and to tell him hey you know get out of this situation cheer up go to school get a degree and you know you can you can still do something you may not be able to play baseball but you'll be able to find a way into baseball and that's what he did he let his love of the game kind of fuel him forward and he got a college degree. He was one of the first people, first blind people in the country to graduate with a degree in communications. And he spent 65 years covering baseball, the game he loves. Wow. For the Yankees. For the Yankees, yeah. He covered a lot of teams. He was based in New York, so primarily the Yankees. But he did a lot of Mets and would travel around the country and, and you know, baseball in general. But 90% of it was related to the Yankees. Uh, for a radio station or a TV station? 
Uh, a variety of things. He he started, you know, with uh, it was originally print. He started working with newspapers, and then he did a bunch of radio stations, and he did syndicated. And at the end of his life, he died in 2021. He was working for um, Yes Network, which is the Yankee Network. Oh, yeah. So it kind of came full circle. Wow, that's a fantastic story. My gosh, oh, thank you. I can understand why you'd be inspired by him. Yeah, and then that's that's half of this. So the other half of the story, and the reason why one of the reasons why seeing home became a bestseller. So, okay, that's a nice story. That's a baseball story. And, you know, many people are drawn to that because they love sports and inspiration. But when I was two and my brother was four, my mother just walked out of my father and said, you know, I'm done. I can't be with you anymore. And left him to raise two boys all by himself, a blind man. And, you know, he did a great job. He brought us to the games all the time and we never lacked for anything. But then she came back 10 years later and sued him for custody, saying a blind person should not be raising children. And they went to court, and the first judge didn't even hear a word of testimony. He said, I agree with you that blind people are useless, and they should not have kids. And he said, the kids are going to live with their mother, full custody, that's it. And my father said, well, that you know, you didn't hear a word of testimony. That's unfair. And he said, you can do two things. You can either let them go live with the mother, or I'm going to split them up and put them in foster homes and... You know, it could take years to get them out of the foster home. So my father made the decision to let us go to my mom. And then he went and got another lawyer. And they went all the way up to the chain and went to the Supreme Court of New Jersey. And they had a second trial. And this time people like, you know, Bob Hope testified for him and Richard Nixon, all these people that had seen us at the ballpark with my dad. And he became the first handicapped person in the history of the world to win custody back from a non-handicapped person. And one of the first males in the United States to win custody back from a female. Wow, wow. And made headlines all over the world. So that was back in 1980, and that's part of that. So there's two parts to his story that are both inspirational, but that, you know, when you put them together, it just makes a, a powerhouse story. Yeah, for sure. And, and 1980, how old were you when all this was occurring? I, I, that was, I was 10 years old, so. 10 years still old. Still very young, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 10, and, 11, somewhere around there. And it, it must have been tough for you, too, dealing with that, you know, because, you know, to be torn between your mother and father. No matter sure. who is doing what, it's still hard. I mean, how'd you deal with that? It is hard. I mean, it was for me. It was a little easier because she left when I was when I was one or two years old, and I was still so young that I really had not made that much of a connection. I get to know my grandmother better and my aunts and all that. There were females in our house who helped us, but uh, for my older brother, he took a little bit harder. But it, it you know, it's always custody is always hard. Divorce is always hard. I'm not, you know, I, I it, there's no way to sugarcoat it that divorce. You don't walk away from that, whoever is involved, the children, the parents, without something happening to you emotionally. So, yeah, it, it was hard to do. And I remember one of my vivid memories was I would be at my mom's house because we were given full custody to her. And I'd be listening to Yankee games on the radio, even if my father wasn't doing the broadcast, knowing that he was there. So it was kind of like my way of being near him, even though I wasn't physically with him. And so, yeah, it, it, it's hard. But, you know, it all turned out happy in the end. Thank you for sharing this personal information. I really I think no it helps a lot of folks who are yeah, listening. And, and, yeah, I mean, there, you, you just have to find a way to get through. That's that's the only way out is through, and that's that's what I learned as a kid, and I still use it as an adult, that you're going to face hard times. No one in the world is going to avoid it, and you just have to go through it and find your way through, and eventually there will be sunny skies at the end of it. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Christopher. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, the Disney book and of Mouse and Man, your one-man show. A little bit more about uh, Disney and, and uh, the show in particular. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so um, the show 
the genesis of it was in in 2001 it was going to be Walt's 100th birthday and I was thinking to myself you know what can I do to to honor him on his birthday and do something special so I realized hey you know you're a performer you're an actor so why and you're a writer so why don't you combine the two so I created a show and it was basically me on stage for an hour and a half or two hours as Walt Disney and just telling his story to an audience going and trying to dispel some of the myths and all that. And I was going to do it once or twice for local audiences. And then I just started getting booked in, in New Jersey and New York. And then suddenly all across the country, I was going to libraries and colleges and schools and theaters and doing the show. So it kind of evolved from that. And, and, you know, I do it off and on here and there. I, I, since COVID, I have yet to do another performance of it, but it was, it was in demand for a while. And then after seeing home became a hit, I, I traveled around the country with my dad and we did promotions for the books at all the ballparks and all the bookstores around the country. And people kept asking me, not my dad, they'd ask me, oh, okay, now you have a best selling book. What's next? What's your next book? And, it, you know, it's the fear of every author. You write a book and you get it. It's a labor of love. And then you say, what do I do next? Like, I, I'm just exhausted. All you, you, you have ideas in you, but you never think you could do another book. So my publisher said, you know, how about something Disney? But the problem is there's only one book about my dad out there. And there's a thousand books about Walt Disney. So how do I say something different? So the book is called Top Disney. And the way I got into it was it's 100 top 10 lists that tell the story of the company and the man. And so it's like uh, the top 10 influences on Walt himself, uh, the top 10 most obscure Disney movies, the top 10 people who should be Disney legends, uh, kind of little lists here and there that when you read it, you could, it's one of those books where you could pick it up and put it down and you don't have to read it straight through. And it, that was well received as well. So I got lucky twice with two books in a row. Wow. So uh, what's coming next? That's a, a good question. <laughs> so again, <laughs> after the Disney book sold well, the question was, hey, what's next? So now I'm in the middle of writing my first piece of fiction, the fiction novel. So it, it's been fun, but fiction is even scarier because you you have the characters in your head that are telling you where they want to go and what they want to do. Like I, when I started writing the book, I had an idea of where I wanted to go. And it's completely different now because the characters are telling me uh, that sounds insane. It sounds crazy, but that's the creative process is you hear voices in your head and characters. There's a great movie. It's called the man who invented Christmas and it's about Charles Dickens mm -hmm. and it didn't get much attention when it came out, but it's the best movie I've ever seen on the creative process because they show you, they show Charles Dickens where Scrooge is literally behind him. Christopher Plummer plays Scrooge and is telling him the story. And he keeps saying, no, that's not true. And Scrooge is insisting like, no, I want it written this way. And then all the other characters started appearing. And soon his room is filled with all these characters that we know and love, but it's showing his mind of how it happened. So yeah, it's, it's fiction is, is a different animal than nonfiction or biography. I would think fiction's harder for, you know, for me, at least I, you have yeah, to, well, the, the hardest part about fiction is when I write about my dad or I write about Disney, I don't have to create a world because you right. already know, you know, the Yankees, you know, New York City, you know, all those things, you know, Disney World. But when you're writing fiction, you have to let people know the setting and the place and the time and the people and kind of fill in. So there's a lot of exposition and you, you got to be careful of how much of that do you do and how much of storytelling. So it's a little harder, but it's a, I, I'm enjoying the challenge. So now you're you're in your fifties, right? I think if I did the yes. math correctly, uh, <laughs> yes. and um, you're you're living still uh, on the East Coast. You're living in New York or Jersey. 
Uh, I'm in the Meadowlands, New Jersey. So I'm just, I, I look out my, I'm looking out my window right now. I can see the skyline right in front of me. So I'm maybe 10 miles from Times Square. So it's good because I get the benefits of the city, but I'm just outside of it. Excellent. And you have a, a couple of boys that you're raising. Yes. Uh, and uh, they're teenagers, I understand? Uh, they're actually, one is going to be 21 in, a, in a, about two or three months. And my other son's going to be 19 in about a month or so. So. Uh, yeah, I, I still call them boys, but you know now they're growing into men, which is it's a it's another challenge and an interesting experience. Yeah, for sure. Believe me, I, I have a bunch of children myself, <laughs> and I, yeah, that's the the most challenging aspect of of being a, an adult. I think is being a, a good parent, right? Yeah. Um, so you're you, you you've really experienced a lot in your fifty years, and uh, you have learned, it seems, a lot from your experiences. And you look at the world. That's a very broad question. You 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 know you're looking out out your window. You're 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 seeing the skyline in New York City. Um, these great influences and experiences you've had in your life, and and uh, you know in the context of what is going on in our world, there's so much going on. It's so complicated. Uh, it's so challenging. You know to to understand politics and social issues and and the like. How. Um, how, as a as a citizen of this country, as a citizen of the world, do you process all of what's going on? Does it trouble you? Does it worry you? Does it inspire you? Does it do all those things? I I think your last line, all those things. You know, obviously, if you're living in the 21st century, you you have to be troubled, inspired, a combination of all those things at any given moment. But um, I'm like Walt. I'm an eternal optimist. It's one of the other things that drew me to him so i'm always on the belief that we're you know things are going to get better and even though you, know, you might have trouble and strife you'll get through it but also uh, it's it's something that my father taught me and his father taught him and all that and i've taught it to my boys is that you can't control anything outside of like how what happens in the world or how the world treats you and all you can control is how you react to it so that's you know the, the, if anyone asks for advice that's the advice i can give him and no matter what's going on it's how you react is the only thing that you can do. And that determines everything from there. So you can, you can get angry and you can, you know, in some cases people become violent or they become desperate or they, a lot of other things, but it's your reaction. So if something bad happens, yeah, obviously you're going to be disappointed, upset, angry, but it's, you can turn that into something good or you can turn it into something positive, just how you react to it. So you got to take a moment, stop, take a breath, and then say, okay, you know, how is it? And a lot of what happens too is that people imagine what's going to happen in the future, tomorrow, the next day, the next year, and they drop all these things in their head that become fears that eat away at them. And, and that's unnecessary because tomorrow is tomorrow. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So you, if you're making a fear and you're worried about something that's not really happening, it's going to drive you crazy. So you just have to, you know, a lot, most, I'd say 99% of the time, people imagine the worst case scenario and it never comes to pass. And they drive themselves nuts thinking. So my philosophy throughout life has been, you know, take it one moment at a time, take a deep breath and just try to react to it calmly and figure out, you know, where to go from here and take it what's happening right now and not to worry about what's going to happen in the future. Great, great insight. Great advice. Thank you, Christopher. And if people want to kind of stay in, in uh, touch with what you're doing and maybe reach out to you for some of the things that you do, a tour or what have you. How, how, could, they, how could they contact you? Uh, the, the easiest way is my website is ChristopherPatrickLucas.com, which, you know, get all the information there. And there's an email that they can get to me. And I'm also on social media. It's Chris Lucas. Um, my 
professional name is Christopher Patrick Lucas because there's already Chris Lucas in the union. But on social media, I just go by Chris Lucas, which is what most people call me. So, yeah, um, either one of those ways is a great way to find me. Or there's also on Facebook, there's a page, Top Disney, which is related to my book that you can follow there. And there's different things about me on there. Great, great. So it's been wonderful talking with you, Chris. Now, what's going on for, for the rest of the day with you? That's good. I actually have an audition later today. So, you know, my both of my unions, I'm in the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, and we're both on strike right now. So I can't do anything as far as television or movies, but thankfully stage is very active. So I'm, I'm going out to audition for a Broadway show actually later on today. Oh, break a leg in your audition. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, do you want to say anything about the strike? I, I, you know, again, it's people think it's about the big name actors making millions of dollars, but it's not. It's about guys like me and and ladies like me who are, you know, we're we're just working class actors who do a show or two. And the way you make your money is, yes, you get paid that day for being on set, but you get residuals. And that's what the fight is about, is that people are not getting paid now. If you watch a TV show, if I was on an episode of Friends, for instance, and that ran on regular television on cable television i get paid every time it runs but if it's on netflix a million people can watch that show and i don't get paid anything for it so that that's what this fight is about it's not about the big guys and the big names and the big stars it's about the working class actors who are just trying to get a fair share of you know people watching work that they did and enjoying work that they did just getting a little bit of that money that the billions so it's it's a complicated thing and i don't think it'll be resolved right away but and and there are no enemies. Both sides want the same thing. You know, we want a, a, a industry that's working and and doing well. But it's going to, like anything, any strike, you have to find somewhere in the middle to meet. So hopefully, we find that middle soon enough. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Uh, solidarity. I'm I'm a union uh, person as well. I, oh, thank I, you. Yeah. Uh, and I've been watching some of the the social media. Um, uh, I, I, I guess it's it's an organized effort to get the the word out, and I've seen some big big time stars uh, on the picket lines. Have you crossed paths with any uh, any big time stars? I saw a couple of guys from The Sopranos. What's his name from uh, Breaking Bad? Uh, Cranston. Uh, Brian Cranston. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So just just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was I was in New York City and just walking by. I was not part of the picket line because I had somewhere to be, but I was walking by the picket line. And as I'm walking by, there's Susan Sarandon and Steve Buscemi and all these people, you know, Oscar winners and, and Emmy winners that are out there, you know, on the picket lines with the average working day actor. So, you know, they don't need to and they've got enough money, but it's not about money. It's about fairness and equity and sharing, sharing the wealth. It's what going back to Walt Disney. That's what his strike was. It's the same reasons as the animators were striking in 1941. They just wanted a share of all this amazing success. So the, the entertainment industry is a multi-billion dollar industry and we just want our little piece of that pie. Excellent. Thank you for explaining it all. Thank you for taking time out. Again, break a leg with your audition and uh, well, thank ho you. hopefully we get a chance to talk again. I'd love that. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Take care, sir. All right, you too. The summer wind came blowing in from across the sea 
It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me all summer long. We sang a song and then we strolled that golden sand. Two sweethearts and the summer wind. Kites, those days and nights, they went flying by. The world was new beneath the blue umbrella sky. Then, softer than a piper man, one day it called to you. Summer wind, the autumn wind, and the winter winds, they have come and gone, and still the day. The summer wind. The summer wind. Warm summer wind. The summer wind. And now, some actual facts and figures a la Harper's Magazine through its Harper's Index from the August 2023 issue. Actual facts and figures. Here we go. Percentage of Americans who think our country should reduce, quote, political correctness, 64%. Who think our country should foster, quote, social justice, 70 percent. Percentage increase this year in the number of Americans who identify as conservatives on social issues, 15 percent increase. Portion of independent voters who do not know the Republicans or Democrats' stance on abortion, one-third, who do not think either party handles the issue of abortion well, two-fifths. Percentage by which foot traffic in U.S. city centers is lower today than it was in 2019, 25%. Percentage decrease since October in the number of companies requiring employees to work in person full-time, 14% decrease. Percentage by which hybrid workers are more satisfied with their organization's culture than in-person workers, 8%.
percentage of remote workers who claim to be dissatisfied with their daily commute, 25%, percentage by which remote work reduces the likelihood of securities fraud, 15%, portion of U.S. workers who use recreational drugs or alcohol while working remotely, one-fifth, portion of U.S. workers who report having been under the influence during a virtual meeting, one-fifth. Percentage increase since 2021 in random workplace drug testing, 18% increase. Percentage of employees who believe their workers have an alcohol use disorder, 26%. Percentage increase since the start of the pandemic in U.S. adults with substance use disorders, 23% increase. Percentage of U.S. adults who say they are too tired to make changes to their diet or exercise routine, 35%. Portion of Americans who are unable to do five consecutive push-ups, one-third. Portion of Americans who think the invention of the internet was bad for humanity, one-tenth. Who think it was neither good nor bad, one-fifth. And finally, percentage of American men who say their online lives are more engaging and rewarding than their offline lives. 48% of American men think that is the case. How do you like them apples? Thank you. 
A note to Mathiel about Sinead. Yes, coupled with her abusive upbringing, she had a heavy load to carry. You see it. If you go against the grain, question the powerful, there will be attempts to discredit you, to excommunicate you, abandon you. How can one not be emotionally and psychologically affected by this sort of behavior? It is so important to know your center on your own and to nurture it. There are good people all around, but ultimately, in many ways, we are alone and need to be good and strong with this truth. This is the last day of our acquaintance I will meet you later in somebody's office I'll talk but you won't listen to
Episode 534 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Christopher Patrick Lucas, Harper's Magazine, and these musical artists. Thelonious Monk, Sinead O'Connor, Frank Sinatra, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourselves.